but hopefully while I still have your attention, uh, let me just draw your attention to something on the side of your connection uh, card there in your worship folder. Um, so you can see, as, believe it or not, Easter is just around the corner. And so this year, um, it's not on spring break, so we're not going to have the normally you know, couple hundred families gone on spring break. So we've decided to have three Easter services this year, two on Sunday morning, one on Saturday night. And uh, get ready for Easter, we're going to encourage you to consider a couple things. One... Um, if you've never been baptized, if you've never gone public with your faith, and you've made a commitment to Christ in the recent weeks, months, uh, we're going to encourage you to sign up for baptism this Easter. And so you can fill out that connection card or go online and say, I want to go public uh, with my faith this Easter. Also, we're trying to grow our guest services team, so ushers, greeters, everything in between, um, exponentially, um, certainly to get ready for Easter, but just as a whole. And so if you're not serving anywhere and you'd love to serve on guest services um, in some way, shape, or form, there's a coffee team, all all kinds of things you can do. Uh, We need to grow our guest services team exponentially and certainly uh, in order to be ready for Easter in the three services we have. So if either of those would describe you, uh, we would encourage you to fill out this Connect card, drop it in the basket on your way out, or go online and sign up as well. We would appreciate that. After a family uh, relocated all the way across the country, um, the children and grandchildren began to uh, miss their grandmother uh, terribly. However, at her age, uh, she was not in a position to drive all the way across the country, and uh, she was terribly afraid of flying. So there seemed to be no solution. But after a period of time, uh, Grandma's love grew so much that it outweighed her her fear, and so um, she decided that she was going to fly across the country and see her grandkids, but she was petrified. And so her children, grandchildren promised her, you're going to be fine. They gave her all the stats about how airline travel is the safest travel in the entire world. And why she appreciated that, um, it did little to ease her anxiety. On the day of the flight, um, she uh, almost backed out. Uh, But after a FaceTime call, uh, her grandkids seeing them, being reminded of what's going to be on the other end of that plane uh, flight, uh, she agreed to get on the plane. So there's tremendous turbulence on the plane, uh, but... The plane actually lands without incident, and knowing that she was a nervous wreck, her kids and grandkids made sure that they were right at the front of the gate when she got off the plane at the exit there. Upon seeing her emerge, uh, they ran and hugged her neck, and the first question they asked her was, um, was the flight as bad as you thought? Um, you know, don't you feel silly? You were all it was afraid and everything was totally fine, but not wanting to admit that she was wrong and her fear was, in fact, silly and unfounded, she replied, no. It was not as bad as I thought it was going to be. But you should also know that I never did put my full weight down on the plane. Now, many of us go through life with a similar mentality. Uh, I'm willing to try out this experience of this situation. I'm willing to try the experience of this relationship. I'm willing to try fill in the blank, whatever it is. But I'm not totally sure I'm willing to put my full weight down in light of all the uh, concerns I have. And for some people, uh, unfortunately, that has been their approach to following Jesus. Like, I'm interested in the experience of the benefits of heaven and and him being with me and ever-present help in times of trouble, all those things, but I'm not totally convinced I'm ready to put my full weight down on him, even though uh, the Bible says to be his disciple, I've got to go all in. And so let me invite you to take your Bibles, phones, tablets, whatever you're using, and turn with me again uh, to the Gospel of Mark as we continue our series with us last week through Jesus' life. And uh, if you want to, on your phone or tablet, you can pull up the U version, and you can follow along with the notes that we've loaded in there uh, for our teaching time today. Despite what uh, you may have read on the car in front of you, uh, Jesus is not interested in being your co-pilot. 
Um, Jesus said over and over, there's a cost to following him and anything that he was subject to, you might be subject to as well if you want to follow him uh, closely. And so over the next two weeks, as we continue to walk through the Passion Week of Jesus' last days, I want you to see in, in Mark chapter 14, uh, six specific events uh, that you're going to see. You're going to show them being hated and worshipped and betrayed and burdened and ignored and eventually um, abandoned. And you're going to see human nature at its worst. Well, that's the bad news. Uh, but the good news is you're going to also see that despite all of these events, Jesus is totally in control of everything that's going on, what it seems to be a chaotic last few days of his life. And so let's look together at Mark chapter 14. We're going to look this morning at verses 1 down through verse 11. Verse 1 says, uh, After two days... It was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the lepers, he sat at the table. A woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. And then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, Why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given up uh, to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish, you may do them good. But me, you do not have always." She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, whenever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. And then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad. And they promised to give him money, so he sought how he might conveniently betray him. Wow! Is it just me? Or is uh, these 11 verses, is that not an emotional roller coaster? You've got uh, people in verses 1 and 2 that hate him, want to kill him. You've got a lady in verse 3 through 9 who worships him at a very costly price to her and her family. And then you've got uh, Judas, one of his closest associates, who actually betrays him. I mean, it is all over the board. And that's just the first 11 verses in Mark chapter 14. Uh, raise your hand if you're sitting next to a control freak. Would you just raise your hand? Now, if you're afraid to raise your hand because you're scared, just blink your eyes three times real fast. I'll know what you mean, all right? And so if you like control, uh, you probably don't like verses 1 through 11, right? Because it feels out of control all over the place. Kill him, worship him, betray him, hand him over, all those things. But despite a chaotic sequence of events, King Jesus is fully in control of everything going on in his unalterable plan of redemption will play out exactly as he intended it. That's the good news. The bad news for some of you is this, is that in following him, we give up control over our chain of events. And so if you like to control things, if you like to engineer a certain outcome, if you like everything to be managed closely, guess what? When you surrender your life to follow Jesus, in doing that, you also surrender the control you have over your life if you want to be his disciple. And guess what? Uh, there are some things that are going to happen that you're going to have to count the cost if you're going to follow him closely. Now, if you're just interested in being a fan, 
and following him from afar and admiring Jesus from afar and reaping all the benefits but not having any of the costs on your behalf, you're not going to experience any of this. But Jesus said, that's not what a disciple looks like. Jesus isn't looking for fans this morning who admire him from afar. Jesus is interested in followers. God's not interested in the minority or the majority who look a little like his son. He's interested in the minority who look a lot like his son. And in doing that, there's going to be some cost in your life. And so if you want to follow Jesus closely, what does that look like practically? Well, listen, everything that happened to Jesus, if you're going to follow him closely, everything that happened to him, you're going to be in a position where it may happen to you as well. So practically speaking, what does that look like? If you want to follow Jesus closely, the first thing you've got to realize is you might be hated. You might be hated. Over the past several years, uh, there's been a gospel that's been promoted by churches where the whole motivation of following Jesus is, hey, if you'll add Jesus into your life, he'll improve your life. Now, do I believe that Jesus offers help and hope in life? Absolutely. Do I believe that Jesus is an all-sufficient Savior who meets every need the inner man has? Absolutely. So those are real benefits. But here is the fine print that is often not being shared. Here's the uh, expose on the bait and switch uh, that these churches are offering sometimes. Here's what the Bible says. If you want to follow him, it requires losing your own life. And that may not mean literally like it has for some of our brothers and sisters around the world who have been martyrs for their faith, but, but for most of us, probably what it looks like is losing your life, is losing all the plans, all the dreams, all the ambitions, all everything you've planned out. Jesus says, hey, when you sign up to follow me, you've got to die to that and all your plans and surrender yourself to whatever it is I have for your life. It means denying yourself. It's the life he offers you. It's not just some uh, improved life, like, hey, my life was going okay, and and if I added Jesus, boy, it just went to 2.0, right? No, no, the life that he offers, uh, some writers have called it accurately, the exchange life. Like, I'm denying myself to elevate him. I'm giving up my plans, my dreams, my hopes, my ambitions, and the only agenda I have is to promote his glory and advance his gospel. That's what it looks like. You're not just adding Jesus uh, into your life. Yes, there'll be more joy and peace and fulfillment, but all that requires dying to self. And do you see the difference? That sometimes churches, if we're not careful, are selling someone on the benefits of following Jesus without disclosing the cost of following Jesus. They're advertising all the glory of heaven and none of the self-denial on earth. All mercy, no justice. All grace, no repentance. All prosperity, no pain or suffering. But Jesus said clearly, hey, if they hated me, they will hate you as well. And so in counting the cost, you've got to understand, if you're going to stand with Christ and for Christ, here's what you understand, there will be people who stand against you. Look at verses 1 and 2 again, the most religious people in their culture. After two days it was Passover, the feast of the unloving brothers are two separate events. The chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. Now it's still Wednesday uh, in the Passion Week. Remember Monday, the triumphal entry that we looked at at the beginning of the series. Uh, so it's Wednesday of Jesus' Passion Week. So Jesus knows that in keeping with his Father's plan, it's been appointed for his time to die. Uh, Matthew has a parallel account, and Jesus in that tells his disciples, you'll know 
that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will deliver it up to be crucified. So let me just give you a little chain of events here. The Passover um, was celebrated each year on the 14th day of the Jewish month called Nisan. That would be the same time frame as March, April, so right about this time frame. Immediately the next day on the 15th was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Those feasts were so closely associated and so back-to-back that they often eventually came to be uh, interchangeable terms. And so on that Wednesday, the chief priests and the scribes uh, gathered at the home of Caiaphas, the high priest. We know that from Matthew chapter 26. And matter of fact, they're probably gathering while Jesus is teaching about his second coming that Pastor Chris taught on last week. And so uh, in this meeting of their gathering, there's only one item on the agenda. Now, I don't know about you, but if I go to a meeting and there's no agenda, I'm automatically uh, down on that meeting, Right? Like, in other words, we have no idea where we're going. We have no idea when this plane's going to land. We're just going to hang out in here, and it probably could have been an email. They had an agenda. And there was one item on the agenda, capture him and kill him. That was the only thing on that agenda. And so verse 1 introduces the most definite decision so far made by the religious leaders. Find him and kill him. Uh, even their objection uh, in verse 2. When they said in verse 2, not during the feast. Here's what I want you to understand. There's no moral quandary going on. Uh, they're not saying that this is a great holy feast. These are two great holy days. We can't commit such a heinous act in light of all the religious ceremony that's going on around us. Those things will be incompatible. No, no, no. There's no moral quandary going on for them. The only reason they hesitate in verse 2, the end tells us why, lest there be an uproar of the people. And so the crowds would have swelled at that time, just, uh, the, just exponential growth, and the, Jesus had a huge following of people. His popularity is growing. And so they knew that if they captured him openly and killed him, then it, a mob riot would break out against him. The Roman government would have shut it down and thwarted all of their plans. And so the only thing they were interested in is what does it take to carry out our agenda and kill him because his message countered their agenda. Now, if we're honest, does it not feel like the same thing is happening in our culture today? That those who stand in opposition against our message and what we stand for and our values uh, seem to be uh, uh, just pushing at any way, shape, or form, and they hate our message and the values, and so they actively oppose it. But but here's uh, the reality. We should expect that. When we look at the life of Jesus, uh, listen, if those things happen, we should, we should expect that. I'm going to burst your bubble this morning a little bit, all right? Let me just tell you something in case no one's ever told you this. You're not as likable as Jesus. Did you know that? And so if the most lovable, loving, likable, if the perfect mixture of grace and truth had people that stood in opposition to him and his message to the point they're willing to do whatever it takes to snuff it out, then why would we be surprised if we're standing with him that people would stand against us? And so they, so whatever it takes. And so when Judas offered, hey, I'll hand him over privately. There'll be no riot. I'll hand him over privately. Like, this is great. This is great. And so, but the reality is this. We're surprised disheartened, offended when people stand against us when we stand with Christ. And so let me just offer some encouragement. Because listen, there's a lot of fear. Like when I talk to people older than me, like you know, people in their mid-30s, 
there is, there is a, it's not uncommon for them to say there's something like this. Like, I just worried about the world my kids and grandkids are going to grow up in. Some, some of you feel that way this morning, do you not? Like, I just I worry, like, what's that going to be like? And if you're not careful, guess what? That fear will just begin to overtake your life, and you'll respond in, in one of two ways. Now, but let me just encourage you this morning, if that's where your heart's at, and this idea that people are openly standing against Christianity in our culture, just like they were here in these verses. Um, if you're listening, say amen. Uh, don't get freaked out, all right? Um, it's what you signed up for and what was promised um, by Jesus. Don't get freaked out when people uh, push back on what you stand for when you're standing with Christ. They did it to him, the most likable, uh, wise, winsome person who's ever walked the face of the earth. And if you're going to stand with him, it's going. so don't get freaked out by that. I want you to repeat this phrase with me. If it happened to Jesus, it could happen to me. Would you repeat that with me? If it happened to Jesus, it could happen to me. One more time. If it happened to Jesus, it could happen to me. One more time with Pentecostal power, all right? If it happened to Jesus, it could happen to me. So why are we so freaked out and fearful and all those things? Now, you know what happens? When we're surprised by something that scares us, one of two things. Number one, we either retreat in fear or we respond in sinful anger. Because I don't know about you, when I can't control an outcome, I don't, I don't respond well. Let me tell you why we should not retreat in fear. It's because just like these events in chapter 14, God is still sovereign, he's still on the throne, and his plan of redemption is unalterable. At no point in verses 1 through 11 was the situation ever outside of the Father's control. But they hated him, they plotted to kill him, his closest associate betrays him. At no point in time was any of these events recorded outside the control of a sovereign Father and his unalterable plan will go forward. Now that's the good news about that. Let me tell you some other good news. That's true of whatever you see playing out in the news today. There is nothing that is happening or will happen that will ever alter the plan of God in his worldwide redemption. At no point in time has God ever stepped off his throne and said, boy, I didn't see that coming, did you? And so don't respond in fear because fear is declaring that God is sovereign but then behaving as if that were not true. Fear is practical atheism. If you believe that, say amen. Let me tell you why I also should not get sinfully angry when people oppose what you stand for, just like they did to Jesus. It's because your anger cannot change anyone else's heart. Now, if you're a parent, you've tried, amen? But the reality is this. You can get as angry as you want at people, You can get as angry as you want when people oppose what you stand for when you stand with Jesus. You can get as angry as you want at the godless culture as it moves further and further away from a biblical world. You can get as angry as you want. But your anger will not produce change in someone else's heart. And if their heart does not change, they, in fact, will not change and nothing will change as the overflow. You say, how do you know that is true, that my anger will not make a difference? Well, here's how I know, because I read it in the Bible. James chapter 1, verse 20 says this, The wrath of man will not produce the righteousness of God. You can get as angry as you want. You can unleash your wrath on someone or something or some idea or some entity, and it will not produce righteousness in the heart of another person is what James 1. And if righteousness is not produced in the heart, guess what? They're never going to change. And do you know what happens if you don't realize that? 
what happens is this, is that you settle. You settle in your anger for ranting against people who oppose what you stand for behind the safety of a computer. And when you do that, hear me this morning, you will make a point, but you will not make a difference in the real world around you. You say, well, I shouldn't get fearful because God's in control. doesn't feel that way. And I shouldn't get sinfully angry because I didn't change anything. Like, what, what's the alternative just to lay down? Let me, let me offer an alternative. This author, uh, Russell Moore, a quote, here's what he said. He said, we will stand with conviction and we'll contend as the prophets and the apostles did in the public square against injustice. Now, we like that, right? Let's take up your arms and do something. He says, but we'll do so with a tone shaped by the gospel with a, I want you to grab onto this phrase, with a convictional kindness that recognizes that our enemies are not persons of flesh and blood. Our enemies are invisible principalities and powers, the scriptures say. I love this last sentence. Here's what he says. We oppose demons. We don't demonize opponents. And not only will your people oppose your position if you want to follow Jesus, but also you're going to be expected to sacrifice deeply if you're going to follow him closely. We are surprised, fearful, angry when people oppose us, and we are offended when we're asked to sacrifice. Let me, let me prove to you uh, with some simple observation. Uh, in 18 years of ministry, I found that people are deeply offended um, if you challenge them to sacrifice time spent on their children's athletic development to participate in the disciple-making efforts of their local church. People are deeply offended by that. Trust me. I've gotten emails. I found that people are deeply offended if you challenge them uh, to give away uh, their money for a cause greater than making memories uh, through travel and experiences. If you're investing more time and money in travel ball and trips than you are kingdom ministries, you're doing it wrong. And I'm not against either of those things. Look at me. I'm an athlete. Amen? But what I am against are those things being so valued that we're no longer able to live sacrificially for a cause greater than the accumulated experiences of our temporal lives. And if you're following Christ, you should be against that as well. Somehow we've created this idea that following Christ doesn't involve deep, life-altering, adjusting standard of living types of sacrifice. I'm just going to come in and and get some helpful notes and hopefully they sing the songs I like and and here's a way I can be happier and better and, you know, all those things. But this idea, if you expect something out of me, I'm offended. I'll just, I'll find another church. Where'd we come up with the notion that to adjust our standard of living for the cause of Christ should be characterized as some kind of legalism? Where do we become deceived into thinking that our children and family are not gifts to enjoy, but objects to worship, which we reorient our lives around? Where do we arrive with the idea that worship would not be costly? Not from this passage. Look at verses 3 through 6 again. And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. 
One of the challenges of reading the Bible is that sometimes you've got the same name being used for different people. That's always confusing to me. One of the other challenges of reading the Bible is that we forget that it's not all in chronological order. And this uh, exchange here with this woman uh, is not in chronological order as well. Mark uh, interrupts the narrative of you know the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They want to kill him and then Judas's betrayal. And so he interrupts that narrative or that chain of events with a flashback into this scene. And the reason we know that is because in John chapter 12, a parallel account, he shows us the timeline of all of that. And so let me help you understand what's going on here in this flashback in verses 3 through 9. Jesus was the uh, guest of honor at a, at a party at a house of a guy named Simon the leper. Now, if you know anything about leprosy, uh, one of the things that would happen in leprosy is literally their skin and in worst cases, even some of their appendages would fall off. Now, I just got to be totally honest with you this morning. I'm hesitant to accept that dinner invitation. Amen? Okay, let me get you. Oh, my arm fell off. I'm sorry about that. Would you pick that up? Might need that later. And the reality is if someone invited you over for pizza, it's a well-known fact that their house was totally infested with bed bugs, like you're, you're hesitant, right? Like you're thinking, hey, I was going to, but then I remembered I didn't want to. So he's at Simon the leper's house, and so the only thing we can conclude is that maybe Jesus must have healed this man at some point in the last three, three years. We're not sure about that. Can't be dogmatic. Or maybe this man's condition had deteriorated to the point where uh, his children had taken over the functional responsibilities of the house, but it's still his house. He's still alive. So we don't totally know what's going on. So Jesus at this house. But what we do know is that all of his closest friends are there, Mary, Martha, Lazarus. And so they're enjoying dinner, and a woman identifies as Mary, the sister of Lazarus, displays this incredible act of love and devotion and worship and sacrifice in pouring out this alabaster flask. And she had no concern with what others thought. And not everyone was a fan. Listen, if you sacrifice deeply on behalf of Jesus, there will be people who are like, that's ridiculous and you've gone overboard. You're some kind of religious zealous or not. You know what the reality is? You know what the Bible calls that person? A disciple. And there'll be people who push back. Look at verse 4. There were some who were indignant among themselves saying, why was this fragrant oil waste? Can you imagine? You're sitting there with Jesus and someone pours out. Now, how costly of a gift was this? Some translations in verse 5 spelled out a little better. It just says in my translation, verse 5, 300 denarii. It was a whole year's worth of wages. Someone lays down their annual salary in worship and devotion and sacrifice to Jesus. And people with Jesus in the room said, you're nuts. You're crazy. Why would you do that? Now listen, if Jesus in the room, I would be like under my breath, like you're nuts, you're nuts, you're nuts. Now and Jesus will say, I'm God, I hear that, I hear that, I hear that, right? Like he, he totally hear that. What's Jesus say? Leave her alone, verse 6. Why do you trouble her? She's done a good work for me. And so here's what Jesus says. Any time that someone sacrificed deeply on my behalf, that is worship. Because in sacrifice and in worship, what I'm declaring is the worth of someone or something. You see, if you think something has worth, you'll sacrifice deeply on behalf of it. And in pouring out the perfume, she was actually pouring out her praise. If you're listening, say amen. Worship will cost you something. 
It doesn't matter what you worship or who you worship. You will sacrifice deeply on behalf of worshiping someone or something. Some people will sacrifice their family because they worship money, and so they work, work, work. Some people sacrifice sexual integrity because they worship acceptance from other people. Some people will sacrifice um, their health because they worship the comfort food provides. Some people will sacrifice the truth in conversations because they worship approval and affirmation. Let me just say it again. Worship is costly. And Mary was willing to sacrifice greatly because she loved wholeheartedly, deeply Jesus. And the whole purpose of your life is worship. And worship is costly because it declares the worth of someone or something. John Piper said the following. I thought it was so helpful. He said, true worship is valuing or treasuring God above all things. Worship was designed to put the supreme worth of God on display. He goes on to say that our worship becomes visible to the world in two basic ways in the New Testament. One is the acts of the mouth, acts of praise or repentance in worship gatherings. One of the things in light of that truth, that is a New Testament truth, you should think uh, as I'm worshiping, as I'm singing on a Sunday morning, if an unbeliever were sitting next to me, would they be convinced that I think God is worthy of worship? Would they be convinced by my praise that I think he has value? And he said the other is acts of love with the body and the hands and the feet. Now, listen to this. This is great. He said, acts of love that show the supreme value of God by what we are willing to sacrifice for the good of others. That is worship. And so following Jesus may cause you to be hated. It will absolutely cause you to sacrifice. But if you still want to follow Jesus, here's the last truth. You might be betrayed by someone close. There are many names that live in infamy in history. Adolf Hitler, Lee Harvey Oswald, Saddam Hussein, Benedict Arnold, SpongeBob SquarePants. But perhaps no name in all of human history is more infamous than Judas Iscariot. The great prophet Coolio said this, I quote, ain't no party like a West Coast party because a West Coast party don't stop. Amen. Let me offer up another hymn. Ain't no hurt like a church hurt because a church hurt ain't supposed to happen. But my guess is more than one person in the room has had their heart broken, had their gut stomped out by a person they sat next to and worship or served alongside of for years. I run into people all the time who say things like this, well, I don't go to church anymore because I had a bad experience. I got hurt. I said, I can appreciate that. I've got an encouraging note or two in the offering plate. I've always asked those people, I said, oh, that's, I appreciate that. You ever had a bad, bad experience at a restaurant? Oh, yeah. Did you stop going out to eat? Uh, guess what? If betrayal and hurt by someone close happened to Jesus, it could happen to you. So you better count the cost. What would it take to make you quit following Jesus closely?
Look at verses 10 and 11. And then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray him. After the meal at Simon's house, Judas met with the religious leaders and set a plan in motion to betray Jesus. And the mention of a promised sum of money in verse 11 makes it clear that what Jesus worshipped was financial gain, was money. And he worshipped it to the point, he said, I'm willing to sacrifice Jesus on behalf. There it is. Worship will cause you to sacrifice for whatever it is that you worship. And so he worshipped money. Matter of fact, uh, some have argued that when uh, Judas would have heard the teachings and saw this woman uh, pour out a year's worth of paychecks, and Jesus said, hey, I think that's a good thing. Jesus like, Judas says, I'm out. Like, I'm turning you over for 30 pieces of silver. I didn't even get a whole year's of paychecks. I'm out for 30 pieces. That's it. And so from that evening through the entire Passion Week, Judas was looking for just the right time, an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them. And as unthinkable as that is, it's unthinkable that someone that close would betray Jesus so quickly. I want you to be encouraged. God was in complete control. And though Satan entered into Judas, according to Luke 22, he was still used by God to fulfill specific biblical prophecies found in Psalms and in the prophets. Listen, even Judas' betrayal was a part of the eternal plan of God and his redemption. Listen, hear me this morning. Listen, other people may walk out on you, but it will not thwart the plan God has for you. There is no one or no thing or no Judas in your life that if they walk out on you, will thwart the work of God in you and through you. That's what we see through this exchange. And God is able to work in spite of the circumstances caused by the Judases in your life. And listen, if it happened to Jesus, it could happen to you. So count the cost. Despite the seeker-driven gospels being preached in many churches where there's all benefit and no sacrifice, it is clear from the very life of Jesus, it is costly to follow him. You may be hated. You may be asked to sacrifice deeply. And people around you may walk out on you. So make no mistake, there's a high cost to following Christ. Don't be discouraged. Don't be surprised. Don't be afraid. Don't be angry when you encounter it. Listen, be encouraged. You say, why in the world would I be encouraged by that? Be encouraged that he counted you worthy to participate in the fellowship of his sufferings that Philippians 3.10 talks about. Be encouraged. And one day, you will look back from the other side of eternity, and you will proclaim, it was worth it. It was worth it. And what a day, what a glorious day that will be. Would you bow your heads this morning? Your head's bowed and your eyes closed. I want to ask two questions this morning. The first one is simply this. When you take inventory of your life, can you say with integrity that you're a follower of Jesus Christ?
not an intellectual believer, not a fan from a distance, but you're actually a follower of Jesus Christ. Is there evidence in your life? And don't look back and cling to some experience. You walked down an aisle or got baptized or repeated some prayer of someone. I'm not asking you about your religious experience. I'm asking you, is there evidence in your life that you're a follower of Jesus Christ? And if the answer is no or I'm not sure, here's the good news of grace. That you can be sure today. You can leave here today knowing you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you desire that this morning, would you pray right in your seat and confess your sins before a holy God? Would you declare a desire to turn from or repent from those sins and living for yourself? And would you throw yourself on the mercy of Jesus Christ and ask him to forgive your sins this morning? Would you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and say, would you pray right now, right in your seat, right where you're at? You can pray and receive Jesus Christ. You can be born again. You can be saved. Would you pray right now and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? For those of you who have made a commitment, you're following Christ with your life, let me just ask you a question that I wrestled with my, myself this week. And here's the question. What has it cost me to follow Jesus closely? What has it cost me to follow Jesus closely? And if the answer is, Nothing. And maybe it's time we start following closely. Would you pray right now and ask God, Lord, what would it look like this very week to live sacrificially on your behalf? Would it cause your schedule to look different this week? Would it cause your bank account to look different? Would it cause the conversations with the people around you to go different? What would it look like for you to live sacrificially this week in a practical way? Would it cause you to swallow your own pride of being right? What would it look like this week? Father, I pray this morning that we would be encouraged that you would find us worthy to participate in the fellowship of your sufferings. That God, no matter who or what stands against us in culture, no matter who walks out on us, God, no matter who criticizes us for our sacrifice, God, we would count it worthy and a privilege to participate in the sufferings of Jesus Christ this week. Encourage us, Lord, in that truth. And God, for everyone in the room this morning, me included, God, help us to see clearly this week what it would look like to live sacrificially on behalf of Jesus Christ in real, tangible, practical ways. 
And so, God, let us never be deceived by a worship that costs us nothing. And so, God, challenge us this week. Open our eyes to those opportunities to declare the worth of Jesus Christ to the watching world around us. And God, where we've fallen short in that, we cling to your grace. We confess it. We ask you to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness as you've promised. And we move forward in the truth of the grace of God. We're grateful for that. Thank you for loving us, Lord, even when we fall short. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.